At 4 o'clock, it is 66 degrees, mostly cloudy, muggy tonight. Chance for more showers and storms, a low 70. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, I'm Melissa Barclay. An intensive search and rescue effort is underway for residents trapped in the rubble of a collapsed 12-story condo building outside Miami. At least one person was killed. Dozens of people have been rescued. But the mayor of Surfside is fearing the worst. FOR-TV reporter Ted Scouten says, For friends and loved ones, it's an agonizing wait. But there are some tales of heroic rescues. Rescuers were able to reach him and save the little boy. We're still waiting to find out what happened to his mom. But Nicholas said that child appeared to be okay when he was pulled from the rubble. He looked fair. He looked fairly all right. Like he's very lucky. Like he had he had a guardian angel for sure. Authorities say nearly 100 people are still unaccounted for. President Joe Biden has announced that quote we have a deal, a bipartisan agreement of a 953 billion dollar infrastructure plan. The agreement reached in a meeting at the White House today. That bill is a result of splitting off of so-called real infrastructure, roads, bridges, internets from the president. Also called for human infrastructure, childcare, and services designed to make life easier for working Americans. Time now for your WTMJ Pella WI.com time saver traffic with Debbie Lozick. I know the roads are wet out there. How's it looking? That's pretty slow. We've got an accident on 45 northbound. This is just north of the Richfield interchange where 41 and 45 split. The left lane is blocked there, so just be careful. It's going to be a slow one. Eastbound 94 between the zoo and downtown. We are at 10 minutes, so a three-minute delay. The westbound side downtown to the zoo will be about 11. Southbound 41, Highway Q to the zoo. That's going to take you about... About 33 minutes, about an 18-minute delay. The northbound side's at 20 from the zoo to Highway Q. That's through the zipper merge. And southbound 43, Brown Deer Road to the Marquette. That's at 27 minutes. That is a 15-minute backup. With traffic and weather together on the 10s, I'm Debbie Lazaga, WTMJ, PellaWI.com, Time Saver Traffic. WTMJ five-day forecast for tonight. Mostly cloudy. It is going to be muggy and humid. Chance for showers and storms, a low 70. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, muggy, much like today. Scattered showers and storms through the area, high 82. Saturday, mostly cloudy, muggy, rain likely, high 80. For Sunday, partly cloudy, 78. Monday, partly cloudy, chance for thunderstorms and a high of 80. In Oshkosh, it is 73. Menominee Falls, 67. Right here in Milwaukee, we're at 67 degrees. I'm Melissa Barclay, Siding Unlimited, WTMJ News Time, 403. This is One Milwaukee, a roundtable with News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth on race relations in our community. Want to be a part of the conversation? Give us a call on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855 616 1620. And now, here are your hosts, John McCure and Sherwin Hughes. We are so glad you decided to spend part of your afternoon with us. First off, right off the bat, I want to give you those numbers again. The Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line is 855-616-1620. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, that number works just like a cell phone, meaning you can call that number and our producer will answer it, or you can send a text to that number and we may share it on the air. I'm John Merck here, and Sherwin Hughes for 1017 The Truth is here. Sherwin, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. It's going to be good, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. My pleasure to be here, and there's... A lot to unpack and with a small amount of time to talk about some pretty big subjects. And we got a lot to discuss. Why do you think that race remains such a polarizing issue in the city you love in Milwaukee? It's tough because when we realize it's so much a part of all of our daily lives, even if we want to deny it, even if we want to pretend it was a long time ago, we've had Barack Obama as president. We had 
civil rights legislation, there are still residual effects that really impact communities and people don't often see how everybody is affected by it. I want to ask you about something that we've read a lot about and I've just started to really try to get up to speed on, and it's bias. And I want to ask you, we all know what explicit bias is. You're biased because you don't like somebody or some institution or some race or some sex. Explicit bias, and you say that. What seems to be more dangerous is implicit bias or unintended bias. We've all heard that term. When you think of implicit bias, what is implicit bias? It's almost like a subconscious feeling that you get. And the human brain is really intelligent but also primitive at the same time. That If you grew up in a neighborhood of all white people or all black people and you know the ins and the outs and the cultures and the customs, and then you go out into the real world and you see people of different races, colors, cultures, and customs, and they're doing things different than what you're used to and what you grew up with, it's, it seems a little bit odd. It could even be dangerous and intimidating. And we react based upon the fact that what we are seeing in these other people is not like what we knew growing up and not what we saw in our own communities. And so it might be body language. It might be condescending language. It might be a whole host of other things where you don't really mean to do it, but it's like almost hardwired in because we are just conditioned to see things one particular way, the way that we've seen them growing up as kids and as young adults. You know, so implicit bias is one thing, right? You have a bias because of how you grew up and you haven't taken the time or made the effort to try to to, to tap into that bias and manage it or change it. But it's not like we're saying it's implicit racism. I mean, there's a difference between bias and racism, right? We can be biased. I can grow up in an all-white suburb, go to high school with no one that doesn't look like me, and I might have bias, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's racist. We throw the term racist around way too much. Like anything that has any kind of racial overtone, we automatically call it racist. Racism, bias, prejudice, very, very different and distinct things. Racism is very specific because it means there has to be some semblance of power. If one group of people wants to stop the progress, does not want to hire or is quick to fire or redraws district maps in legislative districts, they are using the power that they have economically, politically, socially to marginalize another group. We can see somebody else and say, oh, well, you don't speak English. You're not an American. I don't like you. That doesn't have necessarily power to hurt somebody economically or socially, but racism has got to have a power element to it. So what's the difference between prejudice and bias? Prejudice is prejudging somebody. I don't like your hair. I don't like blondes. Blondes aren't very smart. Uh, this person's a redhead. Oh, they must be somebody's stepchild somewhere. Just prejudging based upon limited information of what you're seeing. Racism is a lot, is a lot deeper and involves more, more complex variables, I'd say. So can bias prejudice lead to racism? Do they sometimes or often go hand in hand? I know they're very separate and different things. Uh, can they be married together? Yeah, I think so. So a kid growing up in you know a black community that does not grow up around any other races, and that kid grows up, becomes the CEO of a company. And because growing up, they only grew up around African-Americans, they may not want to hire somebody white because of the prejudice they had against white people growing up because they didn't interact with white people or didn't have positive interactions with white police and now when a white person applies at their firm, they said, nope, sorry, you're not qualified, or you're overqualified, we're not going to hire you. That would be racism because they are using race and the power they have to give employment to deny someone based on the race. So implicit bias or prejudice can go both ways, right? I mean, I think a lot of times what we talk about is there's implicit bias against urban settings or against the black community. 
But it can work the other way, too. I mean, there's implicit bias on the part of the black community if they grew up in an urban setting and never spent time in the hoity-toity white suburb, too, right? Can it go both ways? It absolutely can go both ways. And also with the police. You know, a lot of police officers that patrol African-American neighborhoods are not African-American. If someone grew up seeing the police use excessive force or being incredibly rude and not giving high-quality customer service to the people they're supposed to protect and serve— they may be very much biased, not just against the police as an agency, but against white law enforcement officers in particular. But even another more simple kind of, you know, bias we may see every day. I'm biased against Chicago Bears fans. Like I just, <laughs> I, it's not. They could be very good people and Christian and go to church, but because you're wearing a Bears jersey, I'm like, oh, I, I kind of don't like you, even though I don't know you. I have bias against you. Yeah, right now I'm pretty biased if I see anybody wearing a Trey Young jersey. Oh, don't you got to get that, that out of here, right? I mean, I'm prejudiced against anybody who wears a, a Trey Young jersey. You are prejudging them, and they might be very good people. They might even be uh, great doubtful. radio hosts. Yeah, probably. <laughs> How dangerous can bias be? We all know the danger of racism. It's overt. It's it's literally dangerous. How dangerous can bias be? And and how do we acknowledge that? Yeah, there's bias in the black community. There's bias in the white community and not let it become dangerous. So it can be dangerous in a variety of ways. It can be dangerous in that, you know, a white school teacher might say these black kids come from poverty. They can't learn these complex subjects. I'm going to water down the curriculum, which makes them less prepared to be you know, academically successful in the future, but also just looking at, you know, looking at someone and then making these judgments like, oh, there's a black guy. He probably has a gun. He's going to rob me. I've got a concealed carry. I better shoot him. That's bias where it can turn dangerous too. this, that fear you have of someone or just knowing and believing stereotypes more than getting to know the individual person. Plus, we got 400 million guns in this country. And trust me, people know how to use them. That's where a bias can turn dangerous as well. Or what happens the the, the incident in Florida with uh, with Martin? Oh, he's wearing a hoodie. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at him a certain way. You know, oh, he must be up to no good. And that I wasn't mean, even a cop. That was just right. a wannabe cop neighborhood watchman who thought that this African American child didn't belong in this neighborhood, wearing a hood in the rain like hoods are meant for, and killed him. But then here's the other part about America: he, like George Zimmerman, became a hero. Like his gun got auctioned off for a ridiculous amount of money. GoFundMe accounts poured into. That's crazy. He had a GoFundMe account for his legal defense. That's the kind of stuff that's troubling because it makes people like myself feel really unsafe. But it can also work the other way, right? I mean, if uh, someone in the black community sees me, the way I'm dressed, the way I groom myself, the car I just got out of, they may have bias that, oh, that guy thinks he's better than me. Oh, that guy must have gone to an all-white high school. That guy probably has never hung out with a black guy. They may have bias towards the white community, and they don't know anything about me either. You know, it's really interesting because we've got, you know, we talk about elections and politics on my show on 1017 The Truth. We have a lot of white folk that represent African-American neighborhoods. And so racial bias goes into that as well. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, you got 51 percent of the vote, but I didn't vote for you and you're white. There's no way that you can represent me. So not even getting to know that legislator or their record, people can automatically assume that they're the worst of the worst just because of the color of their skin. All right, we're going to continue the discussion. We're going to dive into some very specific topics. Um, Up next, I thought we could spend some time talking about vouchers. Um, Very controversial. Very interesting, very successful, if you listen to what some people say here in the state of Wisconsin and in other states. Vouchers, education, that's up next when One Milwaukee, the roundtable discussion on race relations, continues. Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood is bordered by North Avenue on the north, State Street on the south, 3rd Street on the east, and 12th Street on the west. 
Many African Americans moved to this area during the Great Northern Migration in the early 20th century. Walnut Street was historically the economic hub of the neighborhood with hotels, restaurants, markets, barbershops, clubs, and more, and was filled with many black professionals. After Congress passed the Housing Act of 1949, the city of Milwaukee targeted parts of Bronzeville for urban renewal, which caused major displacement and ultimately led to the demise of this bustling neighborhood. Urban renewal is oftentimes very specifically related to highway construction that interrupts black communities, especially uh, in terms of uh, home ownership, black businesses, and other black institutions. Dr. Robert Smith is the historian at the American Black Holocaust Museum. So there's, there's that very real and very visible government policy that fundamentally disrupts black communities at the very moment we're witnessing what we assume to be successes from the modern civil rights movement. Within the last few years, Bronzeville has started to restore what once was with new black-owned businesses and events. For 1017 The Truth, I'm Carrie Noni. And welcome back to One Milwaukee on News Radio TMJ. And 1017 The Truth, I'm Sherwin Hughes, along with my colleague John Mercure. So glad that you are with us. Uh, let's pick up the conversation here. A lot of stuff around education that's so relevant and so important in the world we live in. I thought we could start with school vouchers. Uh, boy, Wisconsin, a long history of, of school choice since the school voucher program. Uh, let's bring in Sherwin a couple of our guests here, and we'll introduce them, and then we can have the discussion. We're excited to be joined this afternoon by Walter Blanks with the American Federation for Children. He is with us, and Ellen Borsick is with us, uh, education journalist and senior fellow at Marquette University. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. As we bring you guys in, Sherwin, I want to start with your take because you have been a proponent of the voucher program for a very long time here in Milwaukee. Why, in your estimation, is this important for inner city children and their families? We know that education can, if administered correctly, can be a great equalizer. And we know that people with higher levels of education, they just do better. Longer life expectancy, they're going to make more money, they're going to be more successful. So if there are some schools that fit with family structure and family culture. And those are private schools. But some private schools may have really, really high tuition because they're not getting the same level of state funding. We don't think that it's fair for African-American children from poor families should be excluded from going to those schools because they can't afford the tuition. And other people will tell you they'll move to another district because the schools are high performing or they'll work a second job or take out a loan to pay their children's uh, private school tuition. And some black families and families of color just don't have that opportunity. So why are we denying our children that opportunity because their families don't have the same amount of money? So what the school choice program does, or at least attempts to do, is level the playing field so that all children have the exact same opportunity to get the best education possible, public, parochial, private, you name it. Alan, why is MPS... Why is Dr. Keith Posley so opposed to uh, the voucher program? Well, MPS as a whole, the school board, the school leaders have, uh, for the with, with a few exceptions, been highly opposed to it because uh, <laughs> they're losing kids and and they're losing money, and they think it's uh, uh, weakening the system, and it is leaving them with a disproportionate number of students who have either special ed needs or uh, chronic behavior problems. Um, so they, they think they're getting the raw end of the deal. That, that's their argument. 
Walter, I want to ask you a question here. So if, if Sherwin, as Sherwin so eloquently put it, it's about giving every kid an equal chance, giving families the choice to go where their kids want to go, to attend a private school, the family's choice, shouldn't the choice and priority be to improve and fix the public schools instead of run away from them? Yeah, and you're 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 absolutely right. And once again, thank you for for having us on. And the the reality of it is is that the public school system isn't an answer for every single child. There is no one size fits all model for children. And I think that or I know that that parents and families should be in the driver's seat when it comes to their child's education, and they shouldn't be excluded from the schools that they want to go to simply because they they can't afford it. And so I think it's certainly something that you can do at the same time, right? You can give kids options now while also working to to bolster the public school system. But until the public school system is fixed, kids can't wait. Kids can't be stuck in schools until um, schools decide to, to do better or they actually start doing better. And so kids need options now, and I think that we can certainly do both at the same time. And I don't want anyone to think that, you know, because I've taken a lot of heat uh, locally for many years because of my support for school choice. Let me be abundantly clear. I went to public schools and public universities my entire life, but I don't think that it is in my best interest or the best interest of my community to say other types of schools that I didn't attend can't work for other individuals. But I look at something really important, and it's not necessarily data or statistics. I look at where public school teachers send their kids and you guys know that 30% of them won't even send their kids to public schools. And so we're always told that we got to support our public schools and support your public school teachers. And we have no problem doing that. But public school teachers, principals, and administrators don't send their kids to public schools. And I just find that, that hypocrisy hmm. very, very troubling. Yet everybody else is supposed to settle for the school-to-prison pipeline that we know exists exclusively in public education. So the superintendent of Fort Wayne schools said this vouchers are an assault on public education they funnel money away from already struggling public schools and children and redistribute tax dollars to private schools and middle class children is that an unfair characterization sounds like he probably works for the union and look i get it right (laughs) just like with with police when you talk about defunding the police you're going to shrink the size of your union you're going to shrink the amount of money that people are paying when it comes to union dues ultimately shrinking the political power of these very influential institutions, but I don't think it needs to be politicized at all. This is about educating children, and whatever the best school is for that child and that parent, that option should be on the table and tuition shouldn't be prohibitive. Walter, I want to ask you a question. When you hear how it's been politicized, like it's almost an exclusive political bullet point for Republicans, school choice. So Democrats have every right to be opposed to it on political lines, but how does that make your work of talking about discussing and improving voucher programs is more difficult because it's seen as so partisan. Yeah, and, and that's certainly something that, that I've, I've dealt with within my work and in our organization. We, we stay focused on, on the child, right? Instead of talking about, you know, some of the myths that, that we hear, we, we keep the focus around the, the life of the child that's being impacted by, by these policies. And that's what really matters, right? The other side always wants to talk about funding or all these different issues, but they're not talking about why parents and students are leaving the schools in the first place. And so once once you kind of change the narrative and, and talking points and, and play offense, our side always comes out because we're talking about 
ideas and things that are actually helping children, especially in low-income minority communities, right? I'm an example of a voucher from Ohio. And you can't tell me that vouchers don't work because I'm, I'm living proof of it. We, you know, students who benefit from school choice are literally walking billboards that this works. It's not a perfect system, but it's something that's changing the lives of students across the country. Alan, how do education leaders, including those in MPS, defend that students in failing schools should have access to a better education? That's kind of at the crux of all this. What, what, what do leaders say when asked how they can try to force students to stay in schools with poor test scores or that are falling apart when, through choice, they can have access to a better education? Well, I'm, I'm not here to be a partisan for either side. I, I compare myself to the commentator in the booth at a football. But as a journalist, as a journalist, yeah, Alan, what do they yeah, say? So I, can, I can comment on, you know, some observations of what's going on. I think the public school people would say that public schools historically, going back to the 1800s, have been the greatest strength of America and have, and have raised, uh, uh, you know, the, the overall educational achievement of children nationwide. And that the problem now is funding and lack of support and not so much uh, lack of choice. That said, MPS particularly has had achievement problems going back for decades. So that was true before the voucher program. It's been true since the voucher program, except it is also important that test scores, state test scores, going back more than a decade now, have not shown any real difference in the outcomes for black kids in in voucher uh, using vouchers than for public school black kids that that the two are about the same and both of them are very distressing you know about 20 percent of of milwaukee kids in both the voucher schools and in the public schools are rated as proficient or better in reading which means 80 percent or not but it's both private and public so the vouchers are very popular but they have not solved the problem of uh, unequal opportunity and success um, along race and ethnic lines. Alan, let me ask you about funding, because we've heard for many, many years the can get kicked down the road about the funding flaw, where uh, we use property tax dollars to fund our schools almost exclusively. The neighborhood that I live in, the St. Joseph's neighborhood, beautiful homes. I've got a 1,700-plus-square-foot, three-bedroom home. I've never paid more than $2,400 a year in property taxes. I go four blocks away in Wauwatosa, my exact same house, same layout, same square footage, $300,000, and they're paying five, six, dollars $7,000 in property taxes. So how much is attributed to that? And then when voucher schools do not outperform or even on par with public schools, or they're both, let's just say, low-performing, it's almost like apples and oranges because uh, private schools are not funded at the same level per child as public schools. You know, they're getting $15,000 per kid, where vouchers are maybe getting seven grand per kid. So even if they're... The, the performance is similar. I think that voucher schools are at least neck and neck with a third of the funding. Um, you could argue that. Uh, uh, and, and school funding is super complicated. Uh, overall, public schools get more money than, than the, the, uh, charter, the charter schools get or than vouchers are worth. But the difference isn't as big as you might think when you factor in a variety of, of things. And... The whole subject of taxes and how to pay for it is, is certainly complicated. Um, when it gets down to actual classrooms, frankly, and some of the people running charter and voucher schools have not only admitted this to me but showed me the numbers, their actual classroom spending is about the same 
and sometimes more than in MPS, which I agree raises questions about how MPS uses its money. Walter, wanted to ask you quickly, you do this for a living in your job there. Is the voucher idea gaining steam or losing in popularity nationally? I certainly think that it's it's definitely gaining steam, and there are different forms of school choice across the country. And COVID has certainly exposed a lot of the issues that are that are in the public school system, and, and parents and families have um, kind of woken up to to what's really going on. And so um, we've seen um, fifty or fifteen plus um, new bills be uh, introduced and, and signed into law across the country. Um, like I said, different forms of school choice, but it's certainly certainly catching on. And I've, I've referred to this year as, uh, you know, the year of school choice and the school choice wave. And it, it looks different in a lot of different places. But the way we educate our children has certainly and is certainly changing. And I think that it's a, it's a result of parents just having enough and, and being fed up with the way that their kids are learning. He is Walter Blanks with the American Federation for Children. Alan Borsick's also with us. Walter, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Alan will stick around through the break. Up next, it is critical race theory. Should it be taught in schools? We'll dive into that part of the discussion when we come back. You're listening to One Milwaukee on News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. Welcome back to One Milwaukee, a roundtable on race relations in our community. Here are your hosts, John McCure and Sherwin Hughes. Welcome back to One Milwaukee on News Radio TMJ and 1017 The Truth. Well, we tackled education in that first segment. I thought it was a productive conversation. I liked it. Flesh out both sides of that argument. Was education, of course, being very centered to improving outcomes, we want all children to have the best shot. And then also in education, there's this other thing, John. Yeah, there is. Uh, All right, Sherwin, let's just get into this. It's been in the news a lot lately. It's an important issue. It's critical race theory in the classroom, whether or not it should be taught. I'm going to read you what I read as the definition of critical race theory. This is kind of at the heart of the debate. What is it? And then you tell me what you would add or take away from this. Uh, This was reported by ABC News. Uh, A higher education expert described critical race theory this way. A study in academia based on the concepts of systemic and institutional racism, referring to how the government has discriminated against black, indigenous, and other people of color through unjust policies concerning housing, employment, criminal justice, education, and more, and how in some cases discriminatory laws or policies, even if they're no longer in effect, can impact families for generations. Is that a fair description of critical race theory? I think it's a fair academic description, but when selling that to parents in majority white and even rural school districts, I can see how they would get on the defensive and they would not want that hogwash taught to their kids because you're going to make White people look like, you know, they're the oppressors, even though they didn't own slaves. They had nothing to do with any of this stuff going on. Why are you going to make us look bad by teaching this stuff from leftist academia? Okay, so that's what's happened in Germantown, where parents stood up recently and they said, Sherwin, okay, why are you going to make us look stupid? Why are you going to make us act like this is the, the world before the 1960s civil rights legislation? Why are we going back to all of that? 
So to that point, what do you say when people say critical race theory is something that should be discussed at the least, maybe taught in our public schools, should be part of the dialogue? I think it was branded incorrectly because whenever you put the word race in anything, a certain segment of the population is going to get defensive and then not hear anything you say after you use the word race. But how I talk about it on my program, on 101.7 The Truth, critical race theory to me is the honest and accurate telling of American history in chronological order. There were things that were put in place, like housing covenants. A lot of people don't know that the suburbs of Milwaukee County were literally written to exclude black people and any non-white people from renting or owning property for a period of 30, 40, 50 years, with South Milwaukee being the absolute worst. So for a period of time, we could not own property in those neighborhoods. That is why we still have almost homogeneously white populations in some of those surrounding suburbs. If we taught that, just as it happened in history, as a part of American history, you know, before we get to the Martin Luther King unit, because every school has that, that to me would be critical race theory without calling it such and calling institutional racism and systemic racism, because most people don't even know what those things mean. Just teach history in the order in which it happened. Okay, isn't there a line, though, between what you say is very, that's a great point, and it's nuanced. It's how you teach it. Words matter. The way we say things. And there are some white people that are going to say, well, race is in the title. This is something I don't want to dive into. You're accusing me of being a racist. And there are going to be some black people who are going to say, we do need to talk about reparations and how we were wronged 100 years ago. So how do we get to the point where we can talk about these issues in a way that people don't blow their stack and can actually have a discussion about it? And all things considered, I think white people need critical race theory more than African-Americans and other races. Let me tell you why. By the time I'm six years old, I know that I'm different. I'm going to be looked at different. I'm going to be interpreted different. I'm going to have the conversation with my parents on how to act and how not to, especially as I get older and I'm kind of a bigger guy and I can be very intimidating, let alone to a, a five foot four inch, 140 pound police officer. I thoroughly know and understand my history and the place of my history in America. If white people who deny critical race theory and deny that race has played a substantial role in their successes, quite honestly, because we were kept out of you know so much opportunity as black folks, like only opportunities that existed in some spaces were just for white people, White people need it more than us. Why would you want to be ignorant of what happened? Even though it was a long time ago, we know the things that happened a long time ago can still have an effect on our present and on the future. And why would you want your children to go into a world that's going to be dramatically more diverse? This is every day. This is less and less of a white country. Why would we want children unprepared to live and work and play in a world full of diversity? So critical race theory, I think, serves white people just as much as it serves everybody else. Here's how I feel about it. I think... I'm not a Marxist. I think I'm not a communist. I think I'm not a fascist. But I think that my kids should learn about that. I think that my kids should learn about things that maybe I don't agree with. And I'm not saying I don't agree with this, but that I don't understand. How are we afraid to teach things and bring up things that can better our curiosity, can make us more understanding and more empathetic? I just don't like that in some districts, they want to run from the discussion because they're afraid of it or intimidated by it, when even if, even if in some of these suburbs, school board members might not agree with some of the tenets, it's part of history. Starting, I believe, in the academic year 2018, 51% of Harvard University, premier private (laughs) university Mm -hmm. in the United States, was 51% 
people of color. And if your family has been very successful in your community and raising your child and they go to Harvard, but the school they went to, maybe Germantown, maybe Oak Creek, that denies critical race theory, when your child gets to Harvard University, which is a huge honor for anybody, let alone anybody's entire lineage of their family, they're going to feel alienated and maybe even intimidated because they're going to see all these different groups and races and culture, maybe speaking different languages, maybe cooking different foods and know nothing about it. So we need to realize that children and young people are going to be at a tremendous disadvantage if they don't know more about the people they're going to be working with and living next to in neighborhoods and communities. I'm WTMJ's John Merck here. He is 101.7 The Truth's Sherwin Hughes. I want to bring Alan Borsick back in here, education journalist. Uh, Alan, is critical race theory taught in Milwaukee public schools? I, I mean, it's a new term, and there wasn't much in the way of in-person schooling anyway right. um, the last year. So I think the, that's a question that is looking to the coming year. There are certainly uh, a lot of teachers who are uh, uh, into issues like this and, and uh, racial justice issues and institutional racism is a, something they have strong feelings about. And Milwaukee School Board currently um, more than more than ever is – very attuned to social justice issues like this. So I suppose the answer is going to be yes. And I don't think it'll cause the kind of division in Milwaukee that it's causing elsewhere because of the nature of the population, <laughs> that people here understand diversity, they understand the problems. Um, they, they know that black people have not been doing as well as white people for a long time, and it hasn't changed since the civil rights movement. You know, that didn't work. School desegregation didn't work, even going back further than that. So so it's going to be a big issue. Um, uh, the whole social justice notion is, is increasingly ingrained in what's going on in Milwaukee, and that's true in some of the private schools, many of the private schools and, and charter schools, as well as in MPS. Are you surprised at what you see in districts like Germantown, which we will talk about here coming up, and other suburban districts where this has become an issue, or is this no surprise to you at all? Well, we live in a time where passion and heat is replacing facts and level-headed discussion on so many fronts, so I'm not surprised it would show up on an issue like this. Um, Good decision-making regarding education very rarely comes from great passion and from the extremes of the spectrum. So I, I wish things were more level-headed and, and uh, even-handed and fact-based. And uh, so I, I don't know if it surprises me, but it does make me worry. He is Alan Boris. Okay, Alan, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Glad to be here. Uh, sure. When I want to share a couple of texts that have come in. The text line's going crazy. By the way, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, the Accident Mortgage Talk and text line's 855-616-1620. This is from the Madison area. We will end up being far better off if we teach our children that we're one blood, one race. Go back to the creation of Adam and Eve. Where did we all come from? We're one blood, one race. We're just different skin tones. And then there's this one from the 414 which I want you to respond to because I've heard this from a bunch of listeners. Uh, I don't need or want my kids being taught critical race theory. It's basically that all whites are racist and they should apologize for being white. I think that's a perversion of critical race theory, but respond to that because I hear that from people. I think that's just a lack of, of understanding. Let me put it this way. I learned so much about European history. In fact, I had to know... European, American, and world history to graduate from high school. 
I didn't know anything about African history until I went to college and paid tuition for it. And so that in and of itself is is totally unfair. So imagine black kids in black districts that didn't learn any European history, only black history. It's like it's not fair. Like we need to make sure that we are telling the stories of history in chronological order. And it's not about making white people feel guilty. And if that is people's first reaction, it's going to make white people you know, look like the bad guys and the oppressors is because there's things in history that actually point in that direction. And here's the other thing. Black folks nowadays are not blaming you for what happened in the past, but we blame you when you choose to be ignorant and try and ignore and deny what happened then that still has an effect on all of us now. You're listening to One Milwaukee on News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. I'm John Mercier. He is Sherwin Hughes. Uh, we will be back. We mentioned Germantown. In Germantown, this has been debated just this week. One of the school board members there who thinks that critical race theory should be banned uh, sent me a long email answering some questions that I posed to him. We're going to share those answers to the questions. I think you're going to find this very interesting. We'll do that after the break when the roundtable discussion continues. Race relations in the United States became front and center after the tragic killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer last year. His death spurred deep conversations about racial disparities and inequalities. One year later, June 19th or Juneteenth becomes an official holiday. Juneteenth celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. Northcott Neighborhood House's Tony Kearney Sr. It tells people that we're real. This is our history, our culture. We're part of America. We help build it. Even in slaves, we help build it. He says the federal holiday will ensure that their story is heard. We just need to be clear that we want folks to understand our history, our culture, our contributions to America. Governor Tony Evers says the work towards equality and justice in Wisconsin is far from finished. Taking real, meaningful first steps towards systemic change in our justice system and policing to ensure accountability, transparency and equity once and for all. Melissa Barclay, WTMJ News. Welcome back to One Milwaukee on News Radio, WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. I'm John Mercure. Sherwin Hughes is here. I'm so glad that you're part of our conversation. 855 616 1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, Sherwin, should we uh, dive into what's happening in Germantown? Yeah, I think we should. Okay. So in Germantown recently, they voted to keep critical race theory in two classes, which are electives. So not all students are taught it. And the school board voted to do that after flip-flopping back and forth about whether CRT should be part of the curriculum there. So I reached out to every single board member on the Germantown school board. And one got back to me and was willing to talk about it. Didn't want to do an interview, but did answer some questions that I had for him. So I'm going to share those with you, and I want you to weigh in. Michael Loth is his name. I started with why he believed that the teaching of critical race theory should be banned in Germantown. This is what he wrote me. Critical race theory teaches whites are the oppressors and blacks are oppressed. Whites have white privilege and superiority, and this was all gained on the backs of black slaves. It teaches the USA is systemically racist. These arguments are ridiculous and hurtful to our students. These arguments also violate the liberty of all of our students, color and white. One last thing, the fact that I oppose this means I am racist. Those that call me racist don't know me. This is a publicly elected school board member. What's your reaction to this? I know you've heard this before. 
So first, he is one of many. This is representative democracy, and I do support and love this country, and I love the fact that people can express their views and then vote for people that also express their views. So while we hear from him, and he said a whole bunch more, many other people think like him as well. And he is just a representative of this mindset that critical race theory is. And in some parts of the, his responses, he called it essentially, he think, oh, I think it's illegal. I think it's criminal. It, right. it violates right. the Civil Rights Act because you're putting, you know, pitting one group against another. And I think his responses, which are incredibly colorful, and I'm being very diplomatic, are the reasons why we need it. Because it's so misunderstood, the interplay of race in everyday American society. We became a superpower because we had not only free labor, but we could buy and sell the apparatus of labor in my ancestors. That has had an effect on every inch of America. And I think we need to thoroughly understand it so we can, if not completely fix it, but at least treat the symptoms of racism that still exist. So uh, this is what he said, uh, to your point. I believe that critical race theory is illegal. The Civil Rights Acts of 1964 prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, religion, and disability. Let's face it, in 1964, no one could have ever guessed that in 2021, white people would need this act. Is he just trying to make a point there? I'm not inside of his head, but how do you react to the fact that he, and he's not alone, many others believe that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would say we probably shouldn't be teaching this. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is exactly why we should. In fact, if we had we taught it in 1964, I believe that this particular school board member, Michael Loth, would have a totally different idea and series of opinions about race. So I think it is necessary and needed, and he continues to illustrate that point with, with his answers. So another thing we hear a lot is that this is Marxist, that this is communist. So I asked him about that in the email um, he does say he believes it's Marxist. And then I said, do you also believe it's a communist notion? And this is what he wrote. Yes, communism is basically Marxism light. Both are government systems that have failed wherever they have been tried. Go to Google Earth, compared North Korea to South Korea. You can see the difference from outer space. Uh, he believes that this is Marxist and communist and shouldn't be taught. Well, when you got to go to Google Earth and look at the differences of North Korea and South Korea, then I guess that's all the research you need to do, huh? <laughs> Commun like, people don't even know. Like, we throw these terms around. I think the people 70 or 80 years ago would be so angry at us because of how we are misusing and misrepresenting uh, Nazi. We throw that around anything we disagree yep. with, anything that's somewhat oppressive, or communist or Marxist. Communism basically means there's no private property. The government owns everything. Everybody's wages are the same. Everybody, there's no division because the government owns and controls everything. That's not necessarily a good system. Marxism is you're going to have class warfare. You're going to have the wealthy that are always going to want to oppress those that are working class and below. And like we still see that in American society. And even amongst conservatives, they may have issues with people that have a whole bunch of money and they're still fighting for crumbs. So to think that critical race theory is associated with these terms is just more reason why I think we need to have a deeper understanding of it, especially for school board members. So this is school board member Michael Loth in Germantown. So then I asked him, should we not teach our students about Marxism, communism, fascism, other theories that maybe we don't believe in or accept? But they're there. He said, yes, we should teach our students about all these theories and teach about how evil they are. In other words, we teach against these theories and why they don't work. Now, so he said, yes, we should, but he voted to try to ban this. Uh, yeah, and that's then an interesting one. Yeah, they said the ban should not be read into by educators. Um, 
I, I guess here's my, my biggest problem with all of this. We should teach history. We should teach all of it. Things we agree with, things we don't agree with, things that are part of our past. Um, and and I, I, I guess I don't understand why we shouldn't be teaching all of this if it's taught in a way that's nuanced and thorough. We, we teach Marxism and communism and fascism in our schools. I mean, these were economic modalities that quite honestly led to World War II. And ultimately, I'd like to think that the free market economy and free enterprise and capitalism, what we have here in the United States, won. But if you if you prohibit those subjects, and I think that there's this fear that socialism is going to wash over the United States. And a lot of Democrats that have reasonable ideas are just automatically labeled as socialists because that word incites so much emotion, especially in far right Republicans, that they're just likely to be against all of it. Let me be clear about this. There are 87,000 elected officials in America. So mayors, governors, county supervisors, alder persons, village board representatives. There's nine socialists. There's nine Democratic socialists out of 87,000. So it's not like it's sweeping the nation. It is a series of ideas that exist in a nation where we actually have free thought, free expression protected by the Constitution. So I think using all this political hyperbole it's just used to scare people. That's all it is. But you would agree that there's some very popular progressive Democrats with some stances that would border on socialist in ideology. I mean, some of the things Bernie Sanders believes in. I'm not saying he's a socialist, but some of those policies, you could argue, are closer to socialist than mainstream Democratic principles. I mean, Medicare for all, because Americans are struggling with the cost of health insurance, certainly. But Bernie Sanders would tell you that he, in fact, is a Democratic socialist. But here's the thing. He can't even win a Democratic primary. And I assure you, he tried. (laughs) So as popular as some of his ideas are, they can be incorporated into the big tent of Democratic politics. And and maybe Joe Biden embraces some of them. Maybe he does not. But yet socialism and Democratic socialism is incredibly unpopular, even amongst Democrats that voted for president and voted in the primaries in 2020. All right, sure. And let's work this phone call in here. John is in Brookfield. John, good afternoon. You're on One Milwaukee. Hey, thanks for taking my call. And I think you just hit it on the head a few minutes ago. I, I also am a teacher in, in the Milwaukee area. And this is something that's come up in a recent school board meeting in my district. And really going back to what you kind of said before is, I mean, uh, we just really need to teach history. I mean, in plain and simple. And, I mean, if critical race theory in whatever capacity gets worked into that, as long as you are teaching history and it is embedded in fact and you open discourse for students and uh, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, that's all we need to be doing as educators. But we're just getting a lot of misinformation out there. And, unfortunately, the, the parents that are coming to school board meetings are just very fired up thinking that we're just really promoting some sort of leftist agenda, which it's clearly not, in, in, at least in the district that I work in. John, has this debate taken place yet in the Elmbrook District? Um, it has. Where have you landed? Uh, they, so where our uh, Elmbrook teachers came in um, is they developed equity principles, is what they call them. And they, did, they actually namely said that critical race theory was not part of their equity principles. But when we had a public forum, there were a bunch of, te- or a bunch of parents from the community that came in really fired up. And a lot of people dropped uh, critical race theory, saying that we shouldn't pass these equity principles because it's just a socialist agenda, and that we're indoctrinating children uh, in the community. And it is just, it couldn't be any further from the truth. I think the teachers of Elmbrook, primarily by saying that this was not CRT, are really just trying to promote professional development within their school district. 
so that they are teaching educators how to basically foster conversations within their classroom and really just teach kids that all of your views are acceptable, just have meaningful discourse. And unfortunately, the principles did not pass. All right. Hey, thank you very much for the phone call. Uh, should we work one more phone call in here, Sherwin? Let's do it. This is Joe in Milwaukee. Hey, Joe, we've only got a minute. What do you think? Uh, I think that a lot of people seem to have con- seem to think that it's just magically gone away when it was only 25 years ago. And I worked for the insurance company based out of Madison that had to settle with the federal government for redlining here in Milwaukee. So it's not like Oh, well, you know, it's not a problem anymore because that's way back in the Civil War days. This is in the very late 20th century. So, yes, we need to continue to have this conversation because those who are affected are still among us, and it's, it's even them who are among us. It's not their, their children or children's children. It's them, and they are still feeling the effects of it. Hey, thank you very much for the phone call. Lots to chew over there. Lots to think through. Then we got more to come. Actually, there's a, some information I'd like to share with the listeners about how Milwaukee County specifically became so incredibly segregated. Because when we look around, we think this must be by choice. These people want to live here. These people want to live somewhere else. It was actually constructed that way. And I'd like to have that discussion on the other side. You're listening to One Milwaukee on News Radio TMJ and 1017 The Truth. I'm Sherman Hughes and my colleague John McCure.